Good morning. morning. That passage Chris read, you can turn there, it's Isaiah 58. Really talks about the Messiah who comes, the king who comes. The king who brings justice. That was one of the primary duties of a king. To bring justice. Now, I realize that justice is one of those ideas that's tossed around today. And I'm probably going to get in some trouble today just by trying to look at what that means. But think about the paper this past week. All the issues of justice that are raised. The Parkland shootings. And what does it mean to bring justice in that setting? About the police and those they protect. What about justice in the midst of their duties? There's articles about wage compensation and gender issues, the refugee crisis, illegal immigration. But justice in American culture is an idea that we're faced with every day. Now today we do think about the death and resurrection of Christ. And that event defines us. Amen? It defines the church. And I hear this question often. People ask Well, what's the significance of the church today? I mean, why do we do church? Well, it comes back down to this event, and this event we often call the gospel. And the gospel talks about a relationship with Christ, but it also talks about that we exist for the good of the people around us. Far too often we take the significance of an event like this today and we reduce it. We reduce it down to a service like this morning, to prayers, to readings, to rituals. Sometimes we even reduce it down to relationship with Christ, saying that's all you need to do. You accept Christ, you're in, nothing more. We often think of the value of this in terms of me because we live in a consumer culture. And we often ask the question, so what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? But the larger question we have to address this morning When you think about the king who brings justice, when you think about Christ the king, Palm Sunday we celebrate him coming in on a borrowed donkey and people claiming that he was the king of king and the lord of lords. And then on Friday, mockingly they put a sign on his cross that said king of the Jews. But today he rose again. He became a king of all creation. So the larger question is, what value does that bring to the world we live in? Now, again, I know someday we're going to get to heaven and everything's going to be new. Back to Genesis 1 and 2. We know that everything will be made right in terms of justice. New heavens, new earth. He's going to correct everything that needs corrected. But what about today? And if we want to discover value and purpose, we have to ask the question, why are we here right now? Now, I think one of the first issues we have to look at this morning, because we often look at our day and age and say it's never been quite this bad. But what was it like in the culture in which Jesus was born, in the culture in which Jesus died? Listen to this quote. It comes from Larry Osborne out of a book called Mission Creep. Follow with me. It says, The New Testament church was birthed in a cultural and political cesspool. There were no family values. Sexual perversion was normative. Human life was cheap. 
and justice non-existent for anyone except for the rich and the powerful. He could have wrote that about our day. It kind of goes back to what Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. The evil of the human heart exists in every space and time, in every aspect of history and present and future until we see Christ come and we meet him face to face. Now, Jesus was dropped right into this mess. And you can understand why Israel then craved for a king, craved for Messiah, craved for someone to rescue them. And again, kings by design were to bring justice. That was their primary purpose. And so in the days of Jesus, they longed for this king to bring justice to make things right. I find it interesting, and I watched a video this past week. Well, justice is a popular word in our current culture. When you ask people to define it, they struggle. In fact, that's what this video is about. They interviewed people in the street talking about justice, and they had all their issues. And then the interviewer said, well, define justice. And there wasn't a single person who could. What that tells us is that justice today is reduced to a populist version that often contradicts itself. It's kind of what we ever want it to be. And so our version of justice here contradicts the version of justice over here. This past week, a bill was passed in our Congress called FOSTA. That's the short name for it. And FOSTA was going after websites that had personals and ads for escorts and other kinds of things because of the injustice of sex trafficking. And I applaud that effort. However, in the name of free speech, the porn industry is protected, which is a massive player in this injustice. So on one hand, we say, yes, we're going to do this. On the other hand, we protect the very thing that we claim is an injustice. Now, I hope you know this. And it's nothing against legislating laws that are good. But we cannot legislate evil out of existence. Can't do it. You can sit there and say, don't do that. People will still do that, even if it's against the law. Here's what God says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? That's us. But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I know that's a verse that many of us grew up on, but I asked the question, what does all that mean? What does it mean to do justice? Now, Scripture speaks the importance of justice, and it defines it for us. And it tells us about our ability to do justice. And that's why I want to center ourselves on Isaiah 58 this morning. Again, the goal of mine is that of the Messiah. Israel wanted a rescuer, a king to come in and to overthrow the injustice of their culture. But God had something a lot larger in mind because he knew that injustice is born where? In the human hearts. And if you're ever going to resolve issues in our culture or in this world, you resolve them where? You resolve them first in the human heart. And then you move those people out into culture. I want us first to look at verse 12. This is really at the conclusion of what Chris read this morning. And it says, In your ancient ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. 
You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Now here we begin to see the true nature of justice. Do you note the four aspects? First, it says it rebuilds what was brought to ruin. Now we need an accurate description of ruin. We need an accurate description of what's right and wrong. But if justice is going to happen, it rebuilds what was wrought to ruin. Secondly, it says, we build right and proper foundations. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And it's just not the present, but it's also we do things that are just for future generations. Again, here's our contradiction. Our culture says that we value, and there's all this talk about how we value our kids and how important our kids are, especially with the Parkland shootings. We talk about how we need to protect them, do right by them. And our national debt tells us that we're living at the expense of our kids. So you have justice spoken here, but you have the injustice of how we choose to live. A third aspect of justice, he talks about repair the breach. The breach in the wall. The wall is what protects us. So we repair the thing that protects us. And then finally, he talks about restoring a way of life, the restore of the streets to dwell in. A life that honors God because God is a God of justice. But Isaiah tells us this is in the mind and the heart of the king to do those four things. And if it's in the heart and the mind of the king... This, is, this should be what drives us, amen? Because we are called the church, we're called the body of Christ, we're called lights of the world. We represent today that mind and that ethic and that heart of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I pray this is what drives GBC. Historically, you realize that Jesus was the only king who died and rose again. There's no other religion. There's no other social economic empire that ever had a king who died and rose again. And he is that king of king and he is the Lord of lords and he will set everything right. He will bring justice to this world. So what's the problem? But the very beginning of Isaiah 58, we have a description of a very religious and ethical people. When you first start reading it, you realize these people fasted. They went to the temple. They, they did the worship thing. When they were called to do the worship thing, they gave sacrifices. In fact, God through Isaiah says, listen, these people seek me daily. It was something that was part of their daily ritual. And so we can say that these people were passionate, they were religious, and they were moral. But here's how Isaiah starts out in verse 1. He says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. The word transgression is the word for their sin. You might put the word injustice there. To the house of Jacob, their sins. Now their response, because they were doing all these religious things, they were practicing exactly what God told them to practice. Their response was, say what? I mean, God, look at everything we do for you. And there's the hint. See, God says in your religious activity, you really do two things. And we see this in verse three. First thing they, he says they do is they, they seek it for their own pleasure. It's what's in it for me. God, I do all these wonderful things. So what do I get out of it? 
And two, he says, in the workplace, in the marketplace, you don't practice what you preach. You actually oppress people around you. You oppress other workers. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, what are we getting out of this? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You know, what God is saying is, I want your religion to move from your rituals to a lifestyle. Look at verse 6. Is this not the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. And he's really saying this, listen, when people around you, do you add weights and burden on them or do you actually free them from their burdens? Jesus said it this way, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you what? Free. In verse seven, is it not to share your bread? He starts actually spelling this out with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. And when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. And you note the question mark there. And so God says, listen, you say, you know me and you do all this religious stuff. You fast and you pray and you worship and you sacrifice. But he says, you really do not know me. And they're startled at this. Why? Because God is identifying with the people at the bottom of the ladder. Now, I know that might start, not startle us as much as it did them. And let me explain why. But, you know, in the psalmist, he says the same thing. He says that I'm a father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. But what we see here is God the king standing with the most vulnerable economically, politically, and spiritually. And that is an absolute shock to the people of their day. Now, Zechariah 7 is a parallel passage. You don't need to turn there. Just kind of listen. And Jesus says, listen, when you fast, you didn't do it for me. You did it for yourselves. And it's that whole idea, again, doing it for their, their own pleasure, their own ideas, their own consumerism. And in verse 9, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. The word judgment there is the word for justice. It's the Hebrew word mishpat. Okay, say mishpat with me. Mishpat. There you go. You can educate someone this past week. They start talking about justice. Say, oh, you're talking about mishpat. And uh, sound really intelligent, okay? Render true judgments. Render true justice. Not false justice, not ideological justice, not cultural justice, true justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. And in verse 10, he says this, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and none of you, let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And he goes on to talk about how your hearts, even though you do all this religious stuff, even though you sacrifice and you pray and you practice, he says your hearts are hard like diamonds. Now we know that diamonds is one of the hardest substances that we know of. And God describes religious hearts that practice religion and not literally live it out as hearts like diamonds. And then he says, you know, this, this makes me angry. 
makes me angry. Now, as I said before, this is radical nature for a couple reasons. When you look at the rest of the world, in fact, you look at all religions, doesn't matter what religion, God always identifies with those at the top, never those at the bottom. That's why it's called a religion of good works. If you do good, God will bless you. And if you're doing well, the logical conclusion is that God must be pleased. And in those religions and around the world, if you're doing poorly, then God must be displeased. And so we cannot appreciate the situation that Isaiah is preaching in. I mean, there was a male-dominated society. I know we think we live in one today, but in their society, you have to realize two things. One is that women were property. They had no rights. That children were property. They had no rights. And in their culture, if a husband died, it was a sign of God's displeasure. And that widow literally was cast out. Nobody would take her side because God was displeased. Children, if they were orphaned, sign of God's displeasure. So they had to live on the streets. The sick and handicapped, sign of God's displeasure. They must have done something wrong somewhere, somehow. And we see this all through the New Testament because one day when the disciples are walking with Jesus and there's a handicapped man sitting there and they stop, Jesus looks, the disciples said, uh, Jesus, was it his sin or his parents' sin that caused this? Do you see the mentality? Now, our version today in the Christian circles is what we call the health and wealth gospel. And that's a violation of the gospel of Jesus. It's a violation of justice. So along comes God, and he gives value to those who are most vulnerable. He gives value to people that culture said have no value. And it's why in the New Testament, he picks in the Pharisees. And he says in the one passage, listen, you deny justice. You have all these religious practices. You love to sit at the best seat in the house. You make broad your outfits and your phylacteries. That's just something that made them look really religious. You don't need to worry what it was. You pray all your prayers. You make them long and wonderful. People applaud you. You have little trumpets that when you're going to do something good, you blow them so you gather a crowd around you so people can see how wonderful and good you are. And he says, you deny justice. You exploit the helpless. You take advantage of the widows. And it's why James says this in James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God The father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And what we have to understand is that if you're a person who decided to do this, to invest yourself in these people, you would be labeled then as unfit for God's house. You weren't worthy. Now, this does not mean that the rich and middle class cannot experience injustice. But what God says, the place to start is with the least vulnerable. Now, the word used for justice, remember what it is? It's what? Misfat, okay? Mishpat. There's three things that this word means. So let me give you this definition. Now, remember, in our culture, there is no consensus on justice. We live in what's called a postmodern culture. 
which means opinions are equal to truth. So we define justice however we desire. And it's why we have this big mess. Take the word fair. Today we say justice is being fair. And what does that mean? So we bring up things like equal pay. Well, what does that mean and who do we compare ourselves to? Just other Americans? Or do we go to Central America, South America? Do we go to regions of Africa? We talk about equality of genders. And yet today, if you happen to be a white male, you are considered, well, you're considered many things. I won't get into that. (laughs) We talk about equal rights. And again, what does that mean? We have on one hand, we say women have the right to choose. And on the other hand, the child has no rights. So misfat means three things in the Hebrew language. One is equal treatment. Equal treatment is what we call racial and social equity. And it translates down to laws. For instance, the laws that applied to citizens also applied to foreigners. The laws that applied to wealthy citizens also applied to poor citizens. Now, one of the places we read in the Old Testament, I'm not going to take the time to read it, is the inequity of what they call bribes. See, back then, if you study Middle Eastern culture, a lot goes by how much money you put under the table. I know we have some friends in Morocco, and they talk about how businesses are just practiced with that all the time. And if you're starting a Christian business, it's really tough because everything operates according to bribes. So along comes God in the Old Testament and says, listen, bribes are out 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 the window. You don't do them. Why? Because only the rich can afford bribes. The poor can't afford bribes. So you see the whole idea of equal treatment. It applies to everybody. Two, it has the idea of special concern for the vulnerable. And again, there was four people groups. In Zechariah chapter 7, remember I read that passage? I'm going to read it again, but listen to what it says. It says, render true justice. Show kindness, mercy to one another. Then here's the four people groups. Do not oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you despise evil against another in your heart. In other words, you don't look down on these people. All four of those had no rights in Middle East culture in Zechariah's day. And they could be treated however. The law didn't matter. So along comes Miss Fat says, you know what? Some groups, some groups need help when it comes to equal treatment. We break the mold. Then the third aspect of misfat is generosity. In verses 6 and 7, remember these words? Is it not, this is not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? To break every yoke? And then he uses these words. Is it not to share? What we have to realize in the terms of justice is God does not look at your wealth the way you do. Rather, radical generosity is a mark of living justly. It's not unjust to make more money than somebody else. It's unjust to realize that God is the owner of all things, that he's a steward of all things, and for us not to be generous. Now, we live in a world where there's not equitable distribution. Why? Why? Well, we can just kind of use the word sin. 
But there's other reasons. And what Isaiah says, if we're going to be just, we have to break this yoke of oppression. Here's what this means. There are social structures in place that enslave and oppress people. Illustration. Many of you that were here when Ricky, my friend, preached, he used to play for the Cleveland Browns, but he was raised in a poverty section of Texas, and now he works in D.C. working with uh, the most vulnerable there. We sit down and we have conversations about the current welfare system. And here's what he says. The welfare system, it's not that we shouldn't help people. He says the current structure at this point enslaves his people. And so what we come along and do if we're going to break injustice is we put a system in place that brings justice, not enslaves people. Now think of it this way. Depending where you were born and into what kind of family you were born, one or two parents, you have a greater chance of economic success. It's just that way. If you were born in the middle of Zimbabwe or Zambia, your chances of economic success are very, very different. In Zimbabwe, the unemployment rate is still 92%. doesn't matter how skilled you are. There's just not that many jobs. So how do we bring social structures that enable people to get jobs to that culture? I guess what I'm saying is this. True humility understands that everything we have is God's. And because we happen to have economic advantage is because of who God is and not us. Amen? So understand that we are to be generous with this. Now, illustration close to home for us is our way recovery houses. For those that are not familiar, we have an organization called Cartatizo that we help start and support that deals with people in addiction recovery. We have five houses up and running. And they're designed to break the yoke of oppression. Yes, out of drugs and alcohol. But it's greater than that. It's breaking the oppression of their economic situation. And it's why we have businesses and need businesses that are willing to take a chance and hire some people. Here at GBC, religiously, those that are in the houses are just as loved and important as someone who's attended here all their life. They are welcome and they are part of this body. See, that's equality. And what we're talking about here is transformation of the human heart. And Isaiah says, hey, the king is coming. And if you let God in and you live by his rules, then you will be part of bringing justice to this world. I'm going to reread some passage that Chris read, but listen to what he says. If we allow God to be our king, he goes, your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness, fancy word for doing right things, shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry. He will say, here am I. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourselves out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then you shall, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noon day. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Get the imagery there? 
It's like, you know what? We're content. We're happy. We're at peace. Even though we live in scorched, burned out places, even though life may be rough, it may be difficult, we may be in a hard situation. See, our peace is here. We got the peace of God, not the peace of this world. Make your bones strong. You should be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Man, that's a powerful verse, isn't it? So what are we to do with all this? Let me give an example and then some suggestions. Early church, days of Jesus, after he rose from the grave, they were outcasts. They were blamed for a lot of things that they never were guilty of. So how do you deal with this injustice? Infanticide, leaving a child to die because children were property. They were not important. It's kind of a step beyond abortion. It was very large practice in the culture of the early church. In fact, it was a normal part of Roman life. If a baby was born, born a girl, you didn't like it, you just walked away, let it there, and it died. Born handicapped, you let it die. If you had too many, you just go let it die. Nobody's arrested, nobody's accused of a crime. It was just part of normal life. People didn't even give it a second thought. So along comes the early Christians who opposed infanticide because Jesus says, listen, they're the most vulnerable. You need to do something about it. And while the Christians were a persecuted minority, and because they were a persecuted minority, they had no position to force political change. So they couldn't hold protest rallies. They couldn't petition their, their Congress people. They had no voice in their culture. Here's what they did. They first outlawed it among themselves. We call that moral credibility. They started with themselves saying, listen, we follow Jesus. We're not going to do this. You know, whether it's an unwanted child or a wanted child, we're going to make sure that child is taken care of. Second thing they did. These crazy people associated themselves with Jesus. They literally started going out in the streets, go out in the dark of night, and rescued abandoned babies that were left to die and took them home and raised them as their own. And the church together would help with the finances of that. Now, this became such a large movement that Rome had no context for this kind of behavior. They didn't know what to do with it. And over time, now I'm talking about centuries, okay? Just not, hey, they did this for a week and a month, and wow, everything changed. Over time, centuries, this influenced the decisions made by Rome itself. See, that's how they lived out justice to the most vulnerable, when they had no voice. So what do we do? Well, you hear me say things like this. You wake up tomorrow, you ask God, God, Help me to bless someone today. Find someone to bless. Maybe during the holidays, you adopt another family and just bless them. Bring them in. Feed them with your family. I know sometimes we think that's small, and yet it's large. If every Christian in America would decide to bless someone that day, think about all the blessings that would go out. 
So you don't wake up complaining about injustice. You wake up saying, I'm going to do something about justice. Two, include the vulnerable in your gatherings. Whether it's a gathering like this or a special service like we had Friday night, maybe with your family meals or even holidays, you just include them. You look at the people that have no family, have no say, who have nowhere to go, and you say, come with me. Three, involve yourself in a positive contribution to a cause. And I'm going to use these words because I'm really tired of them in our culture instead of a protest. (laughs) What that means is if you're pro-life, go work at a clinic. Don't hide, hold up a sign in front of an abortion clinic. Go work, get next to someone, help in the positive way. I'm doing some work for an organization called Blessings of Hope. I, I say it's probably one of the best kept secrets of Lancaster County. They distribute food to food banks. They break down large units and break it down to smaller units so food banks like ours can get food and hand it out. They did 6.4 million pounds last year. But here's their goal. Their goal is just not to supply food, but I love their mission statement. Their mission statement is how can we help people break a poverty mindset? So how do we help them come along? Because what they realize is that people come and get food. Some of them don't know how to cook. So you have cooking classes. Some don't have ovens or refrigerators. So help them navigate those kinds of things. Some don't even know how to shop. What they're finding out is that the food banks take all the unhealthy stuff and leave the healthy stuff there. (laughs) Because they don't know what to do with things like Brussels sprouts. Some of you I know, even though you know what to do with Brussels sprouts, don't want them done anyway. Watch it. I like Brussels sprouts. Heard amen up there. You know, one of the things we do here, and we're going to do this in a moment, so I'm going to ask the ushers to get ready for this. Um, Every month we take an offering for the most vulnerable. Doesn't go to our operating budget. Doesn't go for staff salaries. It only goes for helping people who need help. Sometimes with heat, sometimes with medical costs, sometimes with food. And we have a group that oversees that. But once a month, we just take an offering and we ask you to put money in. And it's just not for Grace Baptist people. It's for people in our community. It's a way that we can bless. And let me give you this suggestion. I mean, here's how I look at it. Now, Bev and I are on a stage where our kids are gone so we can do this. I think if I'm going to go out for lunch today, what would I spend? You know, most places you're going to spend anywhere from 10 to $20. And if I'm going to help someone who's vulnerable, why not just drop a 20 in? Because if I can afford it here, I can afford it here. See, that's what generosity means. See, we need this vision. And we can have a vision of our culture, what it means, justice, and we get all caught up in that. Or we can have a vision of godly justice. And think about Christ. He's born to a poor set of parents. As a king, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. He ended his life with one possession, his robe. And the soldiers cast lot for that. The trial was a mockery of justice. He suffered under the injustice of beatings. And he did all this so you and I could be rich in him. He did all this so that you and I can rebuild what is in ruin, 
build a just foundation, repair the breach in the wall, and to restore the life in the streets. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to sing as a response, but we're going to give as a response this morning to those who are most vulnerable. Let me pray for you as they come. Father God, I pray at GBC that we are those four things. We don't know all the implications of that. We don't know how that plays out. And yet, give us a vision, Lord, of what it means to be you in the midst of our culture. I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for what they mean. I thank you that they are sons and daughters of you. And if they're not, I just pray that they understand they can be this morning. But help us, Lord. Help us to be the kind of church that you called us to be. Help us to be that in the midst of a a crazy culture like ours. And may we be that example. And so your glory is our rear guard and, and we are like light that makes darkness seem like noonday. We worship you this morning, Lord, because you alone are worthy. Thank you for this privilege. I pray our worship was acceptable to you. But thank you, Lord, for your generosity to us. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen.